comes from John chapter 8, starting at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me. And I hope you've got one of the outlines, because if you haven't got the outline, uh, you will find it a little bit difficult to, to follow, uh, because we'll move quite quickly uh, this morning. So let me just open with prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come to you. We thank you that you are our God, that you have revealed yourself perfectly through the Lord Jesus. We pray that as we consider what he said, 
We ask that you, by your Spirit, would open our minds, our heart, our understanding, that we might not only comprehend, but uh, delay or, or follow you and, and obey you in uh, uh, a wonderful way. And so, please transform our thinking, our hearts, our minds, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you have that outline in front of you, that would be uh, helpful, and like I say, we'll move pretty quickly. So, I've entitled it, The Lights and the Light. And so, when you come to, to John chapter 7 and 8, uh, the background to John 7 and 8 is the Feast of the Tabernacles. And essentially, the Feast of the Tabernacles commemorated the completion of the harvest and God's goodness to the Israelites as they traveled from Egypt through the wilderness. And the feast was known for at least two important things. First of all, there was a water ceremony where the priest poured water on the altar. And uh, sorry, we, I'm doing this uh, John 8 because we're working through John's Gospel at uh, Maidavelle in the afternoon. So I just thought I'm going to preach that this afternoon. So you got it first. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but you are. <laughs> so in John chapter 7, Jesus uses a ceremony, to this water-pouring ceremony, to pronounce that in uh, verse uh, 37 and 38 of uh, uh, John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then there was the lamp-lighting rite. And uh, I don't know if you know about this, but there were four massive lamps situated in the court of the woman. And these were really towers. They weren't just sort of lamps, but they were towers. And uh, they just were massive. And uh, they were about 26 meters, 26 meters tall. So I'm about nearly two, so, you know, 13 times my height, and you'll go through the roof. Okay? So they were enormous uh, light-bearing columns, really. And uh, it's said that uh, when they were, and they, they were set alight during the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles, and there was almost a glow that these great columns cast over the city. Well, Jerusalem isn't, isn't what it is today, much smaller, but cast a bit of a glow of light over the city. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to state that he is the light of the world. When he talks about the water being poured on the altar, I am, come to me, you thirsty. I am the one who will satisfy your thirst. With these lamps, the Feast of the Tabernacle, uh, I am the light of the world. So let's consider John 8, verse 12 to 30 together. So in John uh, 8, uh, 12 to 30, it can be broken up into four sections, and you can see that on your outline. So first of all, Jesus' stunning claim to be the light of the world. Listen to what he says in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will or shall not walk in darkness, but will or shall have the light of life. So what are the implications of Jesus' claim? And I want to go through these implications very quickly with you. Well, first of all, the implication is that Jesus is claiming deity. He's claiming to be God. The Old Testament teaches that God alone is our light and eternal life. So Psalm 27.1 reads as follows. The Lord is my light. And my salvation, whom shall I fear? So Jesus is claiming to be God. Secondly, Jesus is also claiming to be the Messiah. And so the Old Testament teaches that God the Messiah will come physically and he'll come as the ultimate great light. So let me read a little section to you from uh, Isaiah 9 and verse 2 and then verse 6 to 7. 
And so it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then he jumps a few verses. Who is this light who is going to come? Then he tells us a bit later on in verse 6. For to us a child is born. These are words that you know well. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Uh, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time on and forevermore. So he, Jesus, is this great light. So in the uh, uh, 8th century BC, you have this prophecy of Isaiah saying a light will come. I promise you a light will come. That is what God is saying to us. And so here is Jesus claiming to be this great light that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so he was claiming to be the light. He is claiming to be God, the promised Messiah. And uh, he was born of, of David's lineage, and he was to establish an eternal kingdom of salvation and justice. That is what he is claiming in that section. Point number three there, Jesus is also claiming identification with God who spoke to Moses in the wilderness and uh, delivered Israel from Egypt. So we can notice from this I am statement. You see that I am statement right at the beginning of verse 12? I am the light of the world. So what is that all about? So God revealed himself as I am in Exodus 3.14. Let me just read that to you. God said to Moses, I am, who are you, Lord? He says, I am who I am, he said. And say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. And so what does I am mean? What does it mean in the Bible? What is God saying here? What is God revealing to us? So I am uh, is showing uh, God's uh, eternity and his sovereignty. He's showing us that he is not dependent on anyone else. Who are you? I am. I am everything. I am everything. You see? Who are you? I mean, I, I can't. I, I will spend years unpacking who I am. I am. You see that? So I am eternal. I am sovereign. I am the creator. I am the sustainer of everything. I do not change. I do not learn. I do not develop. I do not mature. I am. I am fullness. I am perfection. I am wisdom. I am love. I am truth. I am everything. You see that? Everything that is holy, everything that is perfect, everything that is good, I am that. As I notice that Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as I am in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. And in the Greek, it puts that in the beginning. So for emphasis, you need to understand who I am. I am in the absolute sense. And in other contexts, he uses it uh, in the absolute uh, way and, uh, of himself. Let me just uh, read uh, um, John 18:6. Jesus said to them, "Truly, oh, uh, sorry, John 8:58. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, before he existed, I was there. You see, so he's not some ordinary person. He's not a prophet. He's just not a wise person. He is the absolute one. And again, uh, John 18:6." When Jesus said to them, these is when the soldiers come to arrest him, he, they say, 
They say to him, you know, are you the one? He says, I am he. And what happens when he speaks the divine name? They all fall back, okay? His glory is poured out. They all fall to the ground. They have no power over him whatsoever. Okay, and that's why John's gospel begins with the words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So that's what it's all about, this great I am. Fourthly, Jesus is identifying with God in terms of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire uh, to give the, uh, the Israelites light as they walked through the uh, wilderness and uh, as they walked in the darkness. And so, so God is identifying, Jesus is identifying with God who did the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And so he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So it's significant then with, remember, these great columns of light. So it's significant Jesus made this statement in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so in Exodus 13, 21 to 22, we are told that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of cloud to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I'm identifying the Feast of the Tabernacles, okay, going through the wilderness. Who was the light in the wilderness? Well, it was just this great column of light. Jesus is saying, I am the light. I am that light. Fifthly, Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, here Jesus is claiming to be the hope of the nations, as promised to Abraham. Remember Genesis 12, 3? In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Jesus is the light and the life, and he has come to redeem the nations, not just Israel. Sixthly, Jesus has claimed to have the ability to confer the light of life on the elect. So we see this in 8, uh, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will or shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so remember that John has already told us that by nature there is something fundamentally wrong with us. The world does not respond naturally to Jesus. And so we see that in uh, John 1 verse 9 to 11. The true light, right at the beginning of John's gospel, in the introduction to John's gospel, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And what did the world do with this light? What did the world do with Jesus? He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. They refused to accept him. Moreover, he came to his own, and his own people, that is the Jewish people, did not receive him. So that if by nature we do not respond to Jesus, how will anybody get saved? And so we are told earlier in John's gospel that, uh, and this is John 5 verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus as the light effectively confers the light of life on the elect. And the absolute light shines wheresoever he pleases and dispels the darkness in our hearts. That's what we need. God saves us. We do not save ourselves. And then seventhly, 
Jesus, the God of light, he is God of light and yet fully man, and he is claiming to be the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. So it goes right back to the beginning. And so it is only the light that can overcome darkness. Only Jesus, the God, man, can overcome the devil in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And only the God, man, can deal with the darkness in a decisive way. So for Jesus to claim, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will or shall not walk in darkness, but will or shall have the light of life, this can only mean that he is claiming to be the Messiah. That was a Messiah promise right from the beginning. The world is in a hopeless condition. They're under my judgment. I need, God is saying, to move to save these people, and I will save them through giving them the Messiah. So here we have Jesus revealing his person, who he is, and uh, he is claiming, obviously, to be God, and his work, he is a redeemer. He has come to save people. So he is a savior. Now, he's made these, these astonishing remarks. I mean, this, this passage is just unbelievably uh, startling, stunning, <laughs> remarkable when uh, you come to a passage like this in John's Gospel. And so you have a response to all this. This is a big point number two there. The claims of Jesus, the response of the Pharisees. And this is verse 13. So therefore the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony or your witness is not true. So notice that the Pharisees do not interact with Jesus about his being the light of the world. Rather, the Pharisees claim that Jesus' testimony about himself was false because it did not comply with the legal principle required by the Jewish law or the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So here is Jesus, the big point. The first point is, here he's making these remarkable claims about himself. The Jewish people are standing there listening to all this. I mean, it is mind-blowing stuff, okay? Mind-blowing stuff. The Jews think to themselves, I don't know how we're going to respond to this, but we're not going to enter into a debate with him on whether he's the light of the world. We'll go another route. We will say, actually, you are claiming these things for yourself. And your claim for yourself is not valid in terms of the Old Testament. And that is true. That is true. Okay? So how does Jesus respond to this? So big point number three, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. So he gives us the background uh, to the law. So God is absolutely moral. God is absolutely perfect. There is no darkness in God. Therefore, it is impossible for God to countenance evil in any form. God does not need multiple witnesses to help establish truth or limit area. He is truth. Okay? That is what the Bible teaches. That's what the Old Testament teaches. So what does God do? Well, God gave humanity the law because we are morally imperfect. We can easily be deceived. We can easily manipulate truth. Therefore, we need multiple witnesses to help establish truth and to limit error. Okay? That's how we are. So God is alone, is perfect. We are imperfect. So consider the reasons put forward by Jesus uh, as to his perfection. If you're claiming to be God, <laughs> you cannot err. Okay? And so listen to how Jesus responds. First of all, Jesus claimed his testimony was true 
So he's claiming, I'm not saying it necessarily is true, he is claiming. He claimed that his testimony was true because he had a unique heavenly origin and destiny. So I'm not going to, there are a number of verses I've given you there, I'll just read a few. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 8. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, which I do, my testimony is true. Why is my testimony true? John 8, 14. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. Why? Because you're sinful. But I came from heaven. I, came, I am God. I came from heaven. And I'm going back to heaven. Or verse 23. He, Jesus, said to them, you are from below. You see? That's where you're from. Humanity, from below. But I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So you see, his claim is, I'm not saying it's proved yet, but I'm just saying that's the claim. I came from heaven, Jesus is saying, I'm returning to heaven. I am fundamentally different to humanity. I'm not part of the fallen moral order, the kingdom of darkness. No, I am the king. I am the king of light, of a kingdom of light. And I am the eternal second person of the Trinity who came down from heaven. And this is obviously what we celebrate at Christmas. Number three there. Jesus claimed his testimony was true. Why is it true? Because he was able to exercise perfect judgment. You see verse 16? Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. So the Pharisees judged by human standards. Human standards are imperfect and limited. But Jesus' judgment is unique. Why is it unique? Because Jesus' is not, judgment is not subject to any limitation. Why? And he tells us, and you have this earlier in John 5, 27, where he says, And he the Father has given him, that is Jesus, authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. See that? So he's saying it's quite legitimate for me to exercise judgment because I'm God. And so using that term, Son of Man, is a reflection of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days. This is the one who's worshipped. Okay? So he's claiming to be the Son of Man. Therefore, as God, I don't need any additional uh, uh, witnesses because I am truth, okay, which he claims later on. And then the other fact is Jesus' judgment is always in harmony with that of his Father in heaven. So John 8, 16 says, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. So Jesus is saying that he is in perfect fellowship with the Father. The Father's mind is his mind. Jesus' mind and judgment is in complete unity and harmony with that of the Father. He is saying, I am God. That's the only way in which it can take place. He is not dependent on human uh, uh, faculties to perform an appraisal uh, as are humans. And so our, our appraisal, our judgment is based on what we see and what we hear and witnesses and scientific evidence and legal information regarding precedent. So those are the ways in which humans make judgment. But Jesus is saying, I'm not like that. And even, and I don't want to go into, but, but there's a passage in Isaiah when he talks about the fact that actually he just judges because he knows everything. He has perfect information about everything. He doesn't even read the outside of the person. He reads the inside. He reads our hearts, our minds. There is no limitation to this God. Okay? Then fourthly, Jesus claimed, it's all claims still, his testimony was true because he had been sent by God. Verse 16, 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. So Jesus, the sent one, came to fulfill a mission which no angel could ever fulfill. Jesus' mission is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, like Isaiah 9, 6 and 11, 1. For to us a child is born, a son is given. Father gave the son. A son is given. By who? Who gave the son? Well, the father gave the son. Uh, Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come from a shoot, uh, forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Well, who is the shoot that is going to come from the stump? The stump is the genealogy of Jesse, the family of Jesse. Who is this one who's going to come? And so it is the Messiah. So he was sent to fulfill the types and the symbols of the Old Testament. He was sent to be the final prophet, the final priest, and the final king. He was sent to be the second Adam, the one who was to reverse the curse. And that's why you have that famous passage that we all know, that famous text that we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave. He sent his one and only son. He gave his one and only son. Fifthly, are you still with me? Actually, I know this is a bit heavy. But, but, that's where you've got an outline. It is absolutely profound. This, is, this covers some of the great issues, the central issues of the Christian faith. Don't bail on me. Don't bail on me. It's moving towards a climax. Okay? Fifthly, Jesus claimed his testimony was true because he had a unique relationship with the Father. What? I mean, it's to almost be there as a Jewish person and hear Jesus say these things. We read them. What, was that there? Sorry, I never noticed you when you read, when you read that verse. Yes? But to be a Jewish person and hear Jesus say these things, it is mind-blowing. It is blasphemous to Jewish people. They often wanted to kill him, and ultimately they did. Okay? But listen to what he says. Verse 19, chapter 8. Then they asked him, where is your father? And uh, verse 27. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus was not speaking about some earthly father, but about God in heaven. And Jesus draws a distinction between God and our Father, okay, when you pray, you say, our Father. And God, his Father. Furthermore, Jesus draws a distinction between our being the children of God and his being God's one and only Son. So all the time he's making a distinction. Your Father, my Father, through the Gospels. You, you need to just be aware of that to pick that up. What he's saying, he's making a distinction. He is saying, I have a unique relationship with the Father. You don't have the relationship with the Father that I do. You see that? So Jesus dwells in a unique, eternal relationship with his Father. So it's, he's claiming to be equal to God. And other passages, uh, I'll keep going here. Six. Jesus claimed his testimony was true because he was equal to the Father. Uh, they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, this is verse 19. You know neither uh, me nor my Father. If you knew me... You're a Jewish person. You're standing there. If you knew me, if you knew me, you would know my father also. What, what did he say? Well, did I hear it correctly? If you knew me, you would know my father also. What? What? So if a person comes to know Jesus, then the person will know the father also. So Jesus is the one who can perfectly reveal the Father. Similarly, if you do not know Jesus, then you do not know God. That's what he's saying. See that? 
And if Jesus is not central to your thinking, then God is not central to your thinking. See that? Seven. We're getting there closer. Jesus claimed his testimony was true because he uh, only taught because he, because he only taught the mind of his father. So verse 26. I have much to say about you and much uh, to judge, but, he's, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. See, I declare to you what I've heard from him. So the whole t- t- context is the issue of truth. Jesus is claiming to perfectly reveal the truth. He is the truth. All that he says is true. He is light. He is absolute light. And so the light exposes their false teaching, thinking, and uh, practices. And this absolute truth is what the Father has given Jesus to convey to the world. So he says, when you hear me, you hear what God is saying. Okay? It's not some insight. It's not some wise word. When you hear me, you hear God. Okay? When you hear me, you hear God perfectly. No error. No flaw. You are hearing God. Eighthly, Jesus claimed his testimony was true because he was perfectly accomplished the will of his Father. Verse 29. And he who sent uh, me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things. Listen to this. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always. I am perfect. I am perfect. I perfectly obey everything that the Father tells me to do. And so Jesus is claiming to perfectly obey and perfectly submit himself to the Father's will. Okay, so here you've had these claims about the light of the world. You have the response of the Pharisees. Then you have Jesus saying, you need to know who I really am. I really am claiming to be God. Okay? And if I am God, then I don't have to have witnesses. Who can, who can witness to God? You see the problem? <laughs> Is God true? <laughs> Anybody want to come along and say, you know, yes, I've been, I've been considering the works of God and the sayings of God and the teaching of God, and yes, God, uh, yeah, I, I think you're true. Okay? Yes? What? That's the problem. That's the problem that the Jews have. How, how do we assess this man? I throw the law at him. But actually, you can't throw the... If he's God, you can't throw the law at him. Okay? So this is all blind faith. You see, you just got to believe this as Christians. You understand that? So you either believe it or you don't believe it. There's no reason to believe it, and there's no reason to disbelieve it. Yes? No! <laughs> Christian faith is not like that. So let's go on. How do we know if it's true? And Jesus gives us the answers. So big point number four there, the critical question, are Jesus' claims true? That's the issue. A whole lot of different religions in the world, a whole lot of different options. Is Christ, in what he's saying, true? Yes or no? So he is going to answer this now. So in verse 18 he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I am, I am God. That's what he's meaning there. Okay? So let's have a look at John uh, 8, 18, where first of all he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, uh, uh, and the Father who sent me uh, witnesses about me. So the Father testifies. How does the Father witness and by a testimony 
to the, to the authenticity of the words of the claims of Jesus. How does he do that? Okay. So the father, this is point number one there, the father testifies to Jesus being the Messiah through the objective, through the objective, not subjective, works and signs performed by Jesus. That's what the Gospels are all about. They're showing you just multiple, multiple sides. John's Gospel ends by saying, you know, you can't contain all the stuff about Jesus. Okay? It's, it's not that just sometimes he'll come along and heal the person and, and that's all he did for three years. It's every day just healing masses and masses and masses of people. Walking on water, telling the wind to stop, uh, stopping the waves, multiplying loaves and fishes, casting out demons, raising the dead, healing every sickness without exception. There has never, never, ever been anybody in the world that has done the things that Jesus has done. He is without equal. There can be nobody like Jesus. We have never heard of anybody like that, okay, in the history of humanity. And so he tells us in John 10, verse 37 to 38, this is a bit further on, you'll find, the works of God are the works of Jesus. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. So what does the Father want him to do? The Father tells you what works he is to do in the Old Testament. He has to perform signs and wonders, okay? He tells us that. He has to be able to rise from the dead. He tells us those things. It's in the Old Testament, okay? That's what the good Lord subscribes. That's what he's got to fulfill. So I am not doing the works of my Father. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. See that? (laughs) Follow me. Like I say, the feeding of the 5,000 could be 11,000 people, which is just the feeding of the 5,000 men. So 11,000 people. Did Jesus feed you? Mm, 11,000 witnesses. That's in one shot. Wow. 4,000 could become eight, 9,000. Everybody. You could even, Peter, Pentecost in Acts 2, he could say, you know what he's done. You know his signs. You know his wonders. Nobody's arguing about it. The Sanhedrin never argued about the fact that Jesus performed the miraculous. That was a leading group of Jewish people. Nobody, nobody questioned the miracles of Jesus. It was unbelievably evident to everybody, Jews, Gentiles, whoever, Romans. So he says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, the signs, You've got to make a decision about Jesus, okay? Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So that's why the first part of most of the Gospels are talking about the miraculous, okay? Just miracle after miracle after miracle. Whatever the issue is, Jesus addresses it perfectly. And then the second thing is, so that's the works, the miracles of Jesus. You judge him on the objective things that he did 2,000 years ago. Then secondly, the objective nature of Jesus' death and resurrection. See that in verse 28? So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Isn't that interesting? So listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that what He has claimed will be authenticated. Okay? 
and it'll be authenticated in terms of what is contained in John 8, 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, the lifting up of the Son of Man refers to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. Secondly, the death of Jesus will be brought about by the Jews. When you have lifted up, he is saying to the Jews, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, the Son of Man is Jesus, when you have lifted me up on that cross, you will know. Okay? Thirdly, the death of Jesus took place when God, at, at God's appointed time. And so no one arrested him because his hour, and this is in John 8.20, his hour had not yet come. And so Jesus' death would take place at God's appointed time, not before and not after. And the fact that Jesus' enemies were entirely powerless to harm him is to demonstrate uh, time and time, is demonstrated time and time in the Gospels. Fourthly, the death of Jesus was voluntary. Uh, John 10, 17 to 18, I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Fifthly, the purpose, the death of Jesus was for a substitute of sin. Jesus said, and this is Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to uh, give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus paid the price that only God could pay for our sin. And so the paying the price of sin is beyond our comprehension. Every, every conceivable sin, we think of sin normally as something that I do, something that I say. We do not usually want to even go into the hidden places of the mind where all sorts of things go on there, far worse than what we say and what we do. Jesus saying, every sin, I know your mind. You see, all other religions of the world, they're looking about the, on, on the outside. You know, yes, you did this and you're accountable for this. Got to say, <laughs> probably what you say and what you do is only 10% of your sin. So what's going on in your mind, in your heart. Who's going who's to pay for all that? Jesus says, I came into the world knowing, because I am God, your sin your verbal sin, your actions. And I know your mind. I know what goes on there. I know your thoughts. I know where you go when you're by yourself. Okay? I die for all your sin without exception. Sins that you're not even aware of. What a saviour, you see? So, one, Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man... Two, he says, then you will know. Do you see that? No, to, uh, to understand, to comprehend. It's an appeal to be rational. Jesus appears, appeals to us to engage the issue with our minds. Jesus is pushing us to address the issue, not with our emotions, but with our intellect. And so when it comes to John 8, 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be. See that? and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. So what is Jesus claiming? He's claiming that the cross and the resurrection will vindicate all that he has taught about his own person, that he is God, about his unique relationship with his Father, his view of humanity, that unless we repent we will die in our sins, that through him alone we have the possibility of being saved, that Jesus the righteous dies for the unrighteous, that we may have our sins forgiven. And the critical importance of believing in Jesus. It is all true. You're saying it's dependent on objective data, not subjective stuff. So let me conclude. Is it true? 
While Jesus repeatedly predicted that he would die and rise from the dead, the Jewish authorities therefore approached Pilate to seal the tomb, put a guard in the tomb to ensure that nobody could steal the body. After the claimed resurrection, numbers of people repeatedly testified to the fact that they saw him. Uh, Eleven out of the twelve disciples died as martyrs, testifying to the fact that they saw Jesus alive. And the cross and the resurrection is an objective truth that demonstrates the truthfulness of all that Jesus said. See that? So what is Jesus? Are you still with me? I'm sorry it's a little bit long. I'm sorry. It's a profound passage. I was given this passage. Okay. <laughs> so blame the guys at the church. <laughs> so I'll preach it this evening. So just beware of coming to Madeville. <laughs> so but it is. It actually is profound. I mean, I, I love preparing this stuff. I love preparing this stuff. It's, it is so rich, man. And you just, you, you just, one thing leads you to another, to another, to another. It's like the Feast of Tabernacles. Why is he doing this all at that time? All these things are interconnected. So anyway, I'm going off. So what is Jesus warning to us? Okay. So he's saying, these are my claims. You cannot, you cannot contradict anything that I've said. Okay. And so what are you going to do in the light of this? So there is a warning. Verse 21 and 24. So he said to them, I will not read the whole thing. You will die in your sins if you do not believe me. Verse 24, again, you will die in your sins. You, again, you will die in your sins. And so what is he saying? First of all, the sin in the verse 21 is in the singular. You will die in your sin. So what is that sin? So the sin of unbelief. That's the fundamental sin. Okay? And unbelief, un- unbelief will necessarily preclude people from heaven. That is what he's saying. You do not believe me, not just belief. Some people talk about, I have faith, I have faith. That's not going to save you. It's an object of faith, which is critical. Okay? And he is saying, you need to believe in me. Okay? And so unbelief precludes people from heaven. So let me give you a quote. How could it be otherwise, one commentator said, to reject the son is to reject the father. See that? So you can't say, I believe in God. Oh, no, you don't believe, if you believe, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you don't believe in the true God. That is what he's saying, okay? Because they're part of the Trinity, the Son and the Father, part of the Trinity. So how could we reject the king and expect to dwell in his kingdom? And then the word sins, you see, you will die in your sins in verse 24. It says it twice, your sins, your sins. And so just a couple of quotes that I found very helpful. The, the plural, the sins, Contrasts with the singular, the sin, and refers to the diverse and ugly forms of corruption that mushroom from the one sin of unbelief. So he's saying that there is a one fundamental sin, which is unbelief. When you do not believe, there is a lifestyle that follows from that. When you do believe, there is another lifestyle that follows from it. But this is the core issue. This is a core issue that the world faces. Do I believe in Jesus? Yes or no? There's one life that flows from rejecting him, another from following him. And so the singular expresses, as another quote, the root sin of unbelief. And the plural expresses those particular attitudes and words and actions which make up its fruit. So he says, if you are there, you will die in your sin. And let me give you another quote. To die with one's sin unrepented and unatoned for is the supreme disaster. 
It is the supreme disaster. No greater disaster could overtake us than to reject the Messiah, the only one who can save us. It is the supreme disaster. So let me make the point clear, and with this I end. Jesus repeatedly talked about both heaven and hell. Jesus taught that to be in hell is to be in a place of punishment and to be eternally separated from God. So we cannot read Jesus' words in the gospel and not be repeatedly confronted with his warnings of hell. And neither can we be selective and accept his words about heaven and reject his words about hell. You have been very good. Please don't tell the other folk at Madeline <laughs> that it actually went on for a long time. <laughs> but look, I was given the passage. <laughs> That's in my defense. But, it, but actually use those outlines. Think about those outlines. You, you work through that outline. I mean, I think it is unbelievable what is going on there. And so our Christian faith is not just some blind faith. It's a faith in an objective truth, the Lord Jesus.